Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. You'll be hearing Dave in a moment when we speak to David Tyler, who is a producer extraordinaire at Positive Productions. And we talk to him about uh, things that he looks for in scripts and uh, how to get on. And uh, Dave also talks about the importance of the situation uh, that you pick for your situation. Comedy seems pretty obvious, but um, having a funny one might be a start. So let's have a listen to that now. So here we are with David Tyler, um, and he is the producer of All Things Wonderful on the radio. Let, let's begin with Cabin Pressure, um, but also Marcus Brigstock shows and um, Milton, Jones, uh, Milton Jones shows. And Jeremy Hardy. Yes, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and the news and Yesterday in Parliament. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Travel. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Two of the few shows that you haven't had a hand in, I would say, <laughs> David. So... Uh, David, and you've been, and, and you have been a radio producer. You've been doing this for th- 30, 35 years. As is it Mr. Now? Marconi said to me, this, this device will, yes, yes. Uh, this could yes, be big. Yes. Actually, since, since well, uh, writing for Weekending, uh, which was the news jack of its day in mm. 1985-ish, and then producing mm. and radioactive thereafter. Yeah. How long did you do? Did you do the obligatory short-lived stand-up career for? Uh, about ten months. He was very, months. David was very good. I remember he was a I, regular, I, a regular performer. I was. I, I wouldn't have booked myself though. Once I was producing Cabaret Upstairs with sort of early uh, incarnations of of your very good host here, Mr. Dave Cohen, but also Sir Jeremy oh. Hardy and Paul Merton and Joe Brand and Mark Thomas when they were all yeah. children. Um, I wouldn't have booked me. Yeah, because so. you go, oh, oh, I see. Oh, it could be yeah. that. Yeah, right. that's how it's done. Yeah. The other thing, I heard that the other thing that's often said is that people who are fundamentally uh, writers or producers rather than performers, when they're doing stand-up, they just keep changing the act. They keep writing new stuff. Uh, uh, that wasn't the case and with the, me. Oh, really? Okay. Because <laughs> no, the I, secret uh, is that once you've got a half-decent joke... Get that gag, you stick with it. Yeah, yeah is, that you, is that they tend to... So a, an instinctive writer will just go, that joke didn't work, there's something wrong with the writing, rather than just like, no, it's probably fine, it's the delivery. Uh, yes, and, and also I think uh, it's a rare combination when a writer who regards themselves as as mainly a writer develops a stand-up persona that's actually a credible, whole-rounded thing. So if you see Dylan Moran, for example, or um, Mark Steele, they, they, or Jack D, their stand-up persona is a whole creation. Mm. Uh, it's them whereas say Ben Elton is probably the perfect example of um, a powerhouse writer who uh, re- performs his writing at high at high pace as a stand-up but it's not visceral yeah it's not visceral in the way that sort of way he often talked with Rick Mel or Alexi and they're visceral yeah uh, they are of course writers as well but I think that's a, that's an uh, example of where the division may lie yeah um, and so in those days people if you wanted to be so I think Ben Elton Want, always wanted to be a writer hmm. and he sort of said well if I become a performer then people will notice my writing I think he wanted to be Alexi Sale okay that was the performer he wanted to be and that was very much who, who he was when he started out he was he, uh, and, and that they used to sort of take him to one side apparently and say hang on you know the material's great but you know lose the lose the Alexi right <laughs> lose the being Alexi Sale bit of it but then uh, performers often need something like that to get them going i mean jeremy we knew was always a, he 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 was norman lovett by his own admission when he started oh, I'd, out i'd never really thought of that well that's oh, yeah. that's that was what he so who was norman lovett yeah well, victor yeah. borgia no yeah. i don't know <laughs> There's no yeah. way. There's no yeah. way. And, and so, and that that, but that mm. was his way in yeah. to finding yeah. 
to finding him the 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 person he yeah. was for the next thirty or years or so. Yeah, but but and so. At that point, the way into writing also was stand-up and performance, whereas now there are a zillion other ways where you can make your own podcast, you can make your own YouTube video and all that kind of stuff. To what extent are you, as a comedy producer, who is also open to receiving scripts, yeah. do, you, do you keep an eye out for other forms of media to which might become a starting point for something? Uh, it, it's sort of impossible not to because the the interpenetration of all media into one's just your own social media mm. feed um, just you know you click you click on a link in that comes up in a tweet without batting an eyelid mm. so uh, that's a terrible mixed metaphor which is why I'm not alright <laughs> uh, I've clicked without batting um, but uh, so uh, I probably do even more inadvertently than I do consciously Mm. Uh, I mean, you go and see stand-up, you go and see shows, you you know, there is the Edinburgh cycle, which is still paramount. Um, the sort of lines become increasingly blurred between single stand-up, sketch pair, sketch teams, three people who've left university together and dumped the unfunny one. Mm. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you know, plus a change, plus a thing, because yeah. it, it was sort of always like that, but now it's just delivered into your lap far more easily. Right. That's a very mixed answer, but I think the answer no, is yes, I do keep up, and yeah. it's, hard not, it's hard not to. Because one of the things we do tell people on this podcast is to make something, do something. Previously, I was a bit sceptical about, you know, if you're pushed for time, write a script, because you will uh, be able to set yourself apart. If you've got limited time, spend the money making a really good script, because a really good script will show you what, will show a producer what you can do. But I don't know whether that's particularly good advice anymore, and actually mm. just creating a bit of a calling card or doing something and then having a script mm, well talk. that's just what what uh, we've been talking to milton jones and he, he, uh, the advice that he gives is you know just do something mm. do anything that mm. gets you noticed and uh, yes and it used to be i, I would say until about five years ago um so computers were invented in uh, you know whatever it was about eight years ago mm. and there was a big mm. period where the advice would be don't do it because it'll never be quite as good because it's cumbersome and expensive yeah. and with computers to sort of go and shoot some sketches. and The sound's as, never any good. Yeah, and so as you say, sort of it's better to do it on paper and impress someone that way. That's now sort of changed again. Yeah. Uh, but it can be short. I mean, yes, it's a calling card or... Uh, uh, on you and you know it's getting hits and getting retweets and that is effective and you do notice it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's changed again as computers have become. Computers aren't computers anymore. They're now phones. It's all very fluid. Yeah. Mm. And so everyone's that that's the new normal now, isn't it? Uh, it is. It's the new, uh, yeah. and that, I mean that's wonderful because it means you don't have to get up out of your chair. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's still, but it's still for you, uh, you, you, your job primarily is to sell half-hour episodes of shows to, to radio comedy, Yeah, isn't oh, it? Oh, oh, that, that's, that's what I love to do. Um, so the podcast form, um, exciting, vibrant, and all-dominant though it is, from a producer's point of view, or from this style of producer's yeah. point of view, uh, isn't such a thrill because um, you've got to produce it in enormous amounts and, you've got, and there isn't that much physical production to be done in terms yeah. of musical or effects or fine editing of dialogue to bring out the psychological truths of the characters so uh, from my point of view yes it's still very much oh, 15 minute occasionally in a half hour form on Radio 4 which still appears to be the only um, sort of national speech network that is willing to pay money that allows you to pay writers and performers to just about within an inch of their lives and produces the same yeah yeah um, I mean I guess that there are there are slightly more I guess audible is a bit of a 
it's, it's, yep. looks like it has a future in yeah, terms no, of commissioning um, stuff. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've not done anything on Audible yet, but uh, for uh, no specific or particular reason other than just the right the right thing hasn't emerged mm. that that I want to do and they would like me to do. Yeah. Uh, If people want to send you a script, they can go to the Positive website, which is your production company, yep. and find the email address and send it to you. Yes, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I mean, I, I can quite happily say the email address is david at positive.co.uk with two Z's, where you'd expect an S. But um, hard copy is delightful because I only really read on hard copy. So when it's emailed, I tend to say, "Can you send me a hard copy?" Um, or sneakily, if I really want to know, I print it up and read it properly. Yeah. Um, I much prefer reading on paper. Something about the screen makes it a little disposable. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, interesting. Uh, obviously, when I'm working on scripts that we're actually making, yeah. the, the various iterations yeah. are all screen-based after that. Mm. Yes. I think about when something's on a the screen, there's also so many other things on a screen that could distract you. Like, yes. oh, I could just, while I'm reading this, I could quickly answer the Gmail. Yeah, I mean, for years when we delivered our programmes to, uh, not to the broadcaster, but to executives and, and so on, I didn't put them on CD. Mm. I gave them a, a tape because I didn't want them to play it on their computer. Right. Uh, for exactly that reason. I mean, you know, those, day, those, those days have gone now and it probably didn't make any difference. Um, but yes, I don't like reading new stuff on a screen. Yeah, you can't get notifications on a script. Um, <laughs> no. But um, so when you are reading that script, uh, what, what makes you sad and angry? And that I what... could be playing Tetris on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, what things excite you? What things, you know, uh, what, are, what are some warning signs? Jo- jo- jokes are just bloody great Trojan horses, aren't they? Mm. I mean, you, you know, you read, you read, I mean, I know everyone will say this till they're blue in the mouth, but you read, you read a joke and you go, oh, hello. Yeah. Oh look, they can write a joke because they're going to have to be able to write jokes if it's going mm. to work. So that's a well, necessary, surprised. not sufficient condition. You'd be, I think. you'd be surprised how often. I mean, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised, but we we often notice that. In, and, and it's you know in the excitement to get the story going or the characters going that even very successful comedy writers uh, forget that they have to have jokes. Myself included, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Me, well, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I mean, jokes are also... I mean, okay, so so sitcom is, is sort of playing the piano while driving, isn't it? Because you've got the, the, um, the plot, the characters and the jokes um, all in some vicious, tight sort of cycle where they all have to influence each other absolutely yeah. impenetrably. You, can't, you mustn't be able to get between them, but they must all logically grow out of each other and involve each other. So that's hard, but um, but I suppose the, one of the big things I'm looking for, which people like, I don't think talk about enough, is um, that the and I, uh, the sit need or the com needs to be embedded in the sit. Okay. So uh, what I mean by that is that uh, you can read a lot of scripts where there's a situation uh, and there are some people in it snarking away at each other. So it's a garden centre or it's a run-down theatre. Or, or, and there's lots of people who are discontented uh, and they're all moaning about it. Or, and then there'll be one, one elder person who could be almost 50, you know, who's sort of, <laughs> who, who likes to work there. So they're visible, um, is, you know, is the mm. default setting. Uh, and they're all talking about what they're going to do when they're not there. Right. Uh, or how they can get away, or what a banging party they had last night, etc. Uh, yes. And you think, right, that's not a sitcom, then that's a com. Right. Uh, but, but it may not even be a com, yes. but it's certainly not a sitcom. <laughs> yes. So mm. the biggest, biggest thing, in amongst the other eight biggest, biggest things you need to do for a sitcom is find, hit on something that is intrinsically a funny place to be. And there's one type of sitcom. So 
you know, the apocryphal story of the pythons dining in this hotel and how grim it was and so on. But please realise that it was actually a funny situation, you know, funny incident, funny situation because hotels have to be lovely yeah. mm-hmm. to survive. And what if they weren't? Yeah. Funny situation. Um, you know, uh, Dad's Army was funny because they thought, what if you've got all the soldiers who are too shit to be soldiers and made them soldiers? <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- these, are, these are fantastic yeah, of, you know, whether they're serendipitous yeah. or life experiences, but yeah. Well, I suppose to, to to take an example like say cabin pressure and planes of of themselves or airports or whatever aren't intrinsically funny, but uh, the, the the sit is so solid in that that that's and and the world that is then created around that is is, is to to add to what you're saying about it's just it it isn't just where it is it, it's how you how you invest in that place so it isn't just the mm. world's worst soldiers it's you know the world's worst soldiers in this dilapidated church hall but uh, and, and that yes and that all flowed out of you know they they, they thought what's funny about this so what so what's the first intrinsic tension and in cabin pressure it's you have very intelligent people cooped up mm, right. um you know somewhere so that's any because the world didn't need a, an, a yeah. comedy set in a light haulage company yeah, really, but it turned out it liked it. But uh, but, I, it, but, it, but again, not only in a cooped up place, in a cooped up place that we believe exists, we know what a cockpit looks like. F- flight deck. Flight deck. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't produce it for four years to yeah, not yeah, know yeah. that. But I can I can already see all the dials and all the knobs yeah. and all mm. and and so yeah. we have a grammar that's available. Yeah. If you've but, been on a plane, you know that there are, there's a pilot and a co-pilot. But I think, does the situation have intrinsic funniness? Yeah. Because if it doesn't, it's it's people snarking at each other. And I think that that's a huge thing. Um, I mean, Spaced, you know, which is a very different, very personal kind of sitcom, um, you can't get a flat, so you have to pretend you're living together. Yeah. You know, people forget, maybe mm-hmm. they don't, I forgot, that that has a really solid sitcom premise. Yeah. They have to mm-hmm. pretend they're a couple. And yes, hmm. uh, so 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 yes. The, the, the make the com has to be part of the sit. In in the in the old days, in the fifties and sixties, it was easy because everyone was at work, right? And they'd work for the gas board or a sausage factory or a department store, and there were and so they they were always funny. Yeah, you know, there were intrinsically funny, stupid stupidities about rank and class, and so you know, classes it was intrinsically funny, and so you could always do a sitcom based on class mm. because it's intrinsically funny because the smart person might be the, underneath the class of the uh, of the thick person. Yeah, so that's easy. Yeah, so work sitcoms obviously different now because everyone's just at their screens. Yes, mm. but also I want, it feels like we've really lost our nerve with regard to work sitcoms. I was talking to. Richard Hurst, my writing partner, about this and how I said, you know, could we... He, I think he observed that if something's going to be a pre-Watershed studio sitcom or even a pre, even just a studio sitcom of any kind, it obviously can't be set in a workplace. It has mm. to be in somebody's house. As in the idea that it would be... Uh, it would sort of almost feels unthinkable. And the closest we've got... I mean, Ghosts uh, with uh, Ben Wilbond and all those lovely ex-Horrible Histories people, that feels like mm. almost it could be a studio show. Um... But the idea that you could do Yes, Prime Minister now in front of an audience, you just think, I just, I think if you wrote that studio script and took it to some folks, they would go, why have you done, what is this? But I, I, don't, I don't see why, though. I don't see why either, but it just feels like there was something yeah. strangely... Well, it was just, um, and explain to me as a TV producer that we are talking to about a work sitcom. Yeah. So, you know, the, the work sitcom 
just doesn't ex- doesn't work anymore because we don't have those kind of exactly what you were just saying that, that we don't have those shared uh workplaces so much and we don't you know pe- people don't work we either work on our own or we work you know uh from home or whatever I but mean, we don't yeah. we don't have the factory floors anymore I mean, we maybe, maybe the office killed it because it's you know de- i mean deliberately yeah. as, an, as an act of deliberate homicide thank you you can have that <laughs> um because it uh because it said this is i mean okay it was a paper thing but it sort of said it's deliberately about nothing yeah nobody wants to be there this is what this is the last knockings of communal office work for most of britain you all recognize it and it's the end of yeah. it yeah and the, yeah, yeah. Wernham hog or the paper thing it's a mcguffin of like this is a meaningless yeah. Yeah. It's a widget widget firm, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so that's so so sit. Intrinsically funny sit. That's the that's the first yeah. thing. I think it's a really or, interesting point though, because yeah. I think the idea that not only is not only would it be helpful if it was intrinsically funny, it would also be helpful if every single person there didn't deeply resent having to be there. Yes, it's a, that, that, that's a, it's a real default, particularly, I say particularly for younger writers, like I'm 973, but, uh, but it does, but, but obviously one of the greatest pieces of, uh, of, of advice, I think, that comes in with every writing course ever is, is don't make every character yourself, uh, or occasionally yourself with a hat or a wig, yeah. um, because, the, because the reader will spot it. You know, they all have to have uh, massively, strongly divergent um, you know, attitudes to a particular situation. I mean, when yeah. I say different, I mean, you can, if you're a bunch of geniuses, do what Frazier did and have um, the posh snob and then the even posher snob. Yeah. But, you know, that's... that's. <laughs> yeah. But then that's a whole continent of writers converging on one one writer's Absolutely. room. So, yeah. um, but in, in general, yes, you have to make a con, you know concerted effort as an act of imagination to create a whole world of different characters. Again, easier, unquote, in the old days when you were doing Are You Being Served? The sort of Perry and Croft and um, yeah. uh, because they would experience a shop floor, say, mm. with the eight different types that they could boil down. Right. Um, or, or the, yeah. or the uh, camp, the summer camp, or the... Um, yeah, or Oh, Mr. Porter, you know, for, yeah, you know that, that's right. So, um, so first of all, uh, yes, they all have to have wildly differing attitudes, which, of course, then would roll in perforce, what you were saying yeah. about people not wanting to be there. Yeah, because, yeah, these things, these workplaces all have a grammar of their own. So, you know, I guess I have written a workplace sitcom, which just happens to be Afghanistan. Um, The moment we discovered, the moment we knew it was going to be about bomb disposal, you just go, okay, so you need you need an ammunition technical officer. He's got a number two. You've got somebody who does the signals. You've got an armed escort. You've got a guy overall in charge, technically not in charge of them, but nobody knows that. And a padre. There you go. And then it's like, well, what sort of padre? What sort of number two? What sort of... And we need some of them to be girls, right? Okay, so that, you know... So actually an awful lot of their heavy lifting is done for you or you've, your options are shut down. Whereas if we don't have workplace sitcoms and now you've got a sitcom about a young lady in her 30s who thought she was going to get married and has kids, have kids but ha- that hasn't happened for her yet or whatever, you have to populate that with people. And it could be anyone you like. And so actually the choices all feel much more difficult and yeah, bigger. And I, and I think that feels uh, like so if you're a novelist, you might relish that challenge. Um, yeah. But it strikes me that, that then you're, uh, you're losing all the advantages of if you have found a funny sit. Yeah. Losing, uh, yeah. In the word funny, I'm rolling in the concept of some of the relationships being predefined and absurd. 
Yeah. So person A is above person B when it should be the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in, in cabin pressure, the first officer is junior to the to the pilot and mm. is a much, much, much yeah. better pilot. It's the, it's we're, dad's we're, army. We're, yes, it, yeah. it absolutely is. You know, mm. you you know perfectly well that Mannering has spent his whole life straining to get into the golf club. Yeah. And even when he does, they'll still be snooted him, whereas Wilson can stroll in. Yeah. Wilson's also living in sin. Wilson is living yeah. with Pike's mum, with an unmarried woman, which can you imagine the social death if Mannering did that? Yeah. <laughs> but people of Wilson's class were allowed. Yeah. Mm. Sounds like a bit of topicality being brought in there to yeah. your uh, yeah, conversation. I um, <laughs> I, not intentional, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yes, in fact, that, uh, Harry Thompson... Uh, consciously did that with uh, "Have I Got News?" You know the 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 um, Paul, the Paul character uh, being far cleverer and wittier and funnier than the the, the posh the Angus yeah. uh, character and the and the autodidact being a sort of staple of British comedy yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of ways in which scripts can go wrong, I guess, in terms of other warning signs that's like oh oh dear or you know what makes you want to kind of pick up the phone and actually say, oh, I've read your script and it's rather, rather lovely. Well, if, 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 if lots of jokes make me laugh, then, then that writer is a miraculous and wonderful person. It's already in the top yeah. 5% of scripts you receive. Yeah, I mean, how, how many people can write jokes that make you laugh? You know, like seven, you know, <laughs> nine. So brilliant, fantastic. I mean, that's such an achievement. That's a brilliant thing. Yeah. If I could do that, I'd do that for a living. Right. Um, so, so that. Yeah. Um, it would be amazing if it was uh, in a situation where... Yeah, where you you got that it was uh, that it was intrinsically funny, and those and those strings were played upon during it, rather mm. than you know, rather than just sort of plodding along behind. Mixed metaphor, deal mm. with it. Uh, but um, in the end, uh, you know, if the, if the plot's the right size, if it's got a plot, if they aren't just sort of nerdling around for a bit, yeah, you know, it it really is. It sounds so basic, but in dinner ladies, they they all come in. They switch the they switch the toaster on. They do, the milk bloke comes and they deli- and they put the milk in the fridge. They all talk about how they got there and how crap the bus was. And then and then two and a half or three three minutes of Victoria Wood jokes in, yeah, which is never a bad two and a half or three minutes, yeah, but yeah. nevertheless, um, the memo arrives saying they've all got to wear the funny tabards or yeah. that the the royal is coming for a visit. Yeah. You know, the plot arrives. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's so basic. And then the plot unfurls. And when the plot arrives, all the characters, even the ones who aren't envisioned at the time react to it in the way the viewer knows they're going to and loves yeah. it thereby and the jokes just tumble out at that point so mm. even characters that are characters not in it the characters can talk about how that other person is going to react to it yeah. and that becomes funny um, in Men Behaving Badly when uh, Martin Clunes has to wear uh, no it, um, Neil has to wear glasses yeah. Martin, he knows Martin Clunes is going to take the mick out of him yeah. because British men take the mick out of British men yeah. wearing glasses there's a scene where he's trying them on in front of the mirror and he looks quite funny in glasses. But the big laughs is him, his, he's going, no, no, and takes them off again. It's like a reverse pretty woman kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Because he knows Clunes is going to mock him. Yeah. So a character isn't even on stage, but you know their reaction yeah, to the situation. Right. It's yeah, a joy. Yeah, you're already already yeah. off to the races, so aren't you? that. Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, our, our experience, and we say this again and again, and yet so many scripts that we read when we do first 10-page challenges and that kind of thing is... You get to page 10 and then the story starts. You think, mm. no, you've got to start the story on page three. Or, or, I mean, ideally, page one would be good. Um, but, you know, the story just starts very late. And then if you read the whole script, sometimes the story then finishes on about page 23 mm. and you've got seven pages of wrapping up. Um, is that your experience of reading scripts as well? Um, usually, if I'm not sort of gripped, then 
then the last half passes in a bit of a blur. Right. I'll be, right. Uh, I'll be, I'll be very Or oh, you don't even read past page five or ten. Um, the first five pages are to get you to page ten, and once you've... you've I, th- I, think, I think it depends. You know, so, some people are unable to write. That's all right. I mm-hmm. can't play the bassoon. Yeah. Um, not yet. <laughs> not yet, or indeed ever. <laughs> okay, fair uh, enough. But, um, but usually, but the vast majority of scripts um, are fine in that they're written in the English language. They have a coherent smattering of the different, you know, verbs and gerunds and yeah. adjectives and so on. So you can read to the end without sort of going, what's just happened to my head? Yeah. Um, but it's but it's of no benefit and, yeah. it has, and it can have any number of different faults. It can just be sort of not funny. That is a big crushing yeah. weight really looming over a lot of scripts. Yeah. It just turned out to be not funny. Well, is it not? I mean, and that's, I don't know. I think the ones that are more depressing I think to read are the ones that are funny but just they just aren't about anything but then I would usually ring the writer up okay if they're if they're genuinely funny and if I've got good jokes in it according to the sort of levels of how far fall short of being a sitcom at all yeah. you mm. would you would get in touch and go these are great jokes what else have you got or these you know do you want to come in and talk about it or if it's nearly a sitcom but not quite or, or it's like something yeah. you're doing already you, you'd, you'd have a meeting and how, how many times a year are you having a meeting with someone who sent you a script couple couple of okay scripts. and yeah. but you're reading how many scripts um, probably now about four or five a week. It used to be... Wow, uh, that many? Yeah, mm. it used to be about a, a, a dozen a week. Um, really? Yeah, mm. yeah, it used to, used to be a lot. But then I... And I don't know what the big companies get, although they may have a policy of not reading anything. They pretty, mm. mostly do. Yeah, yeah which I find you baffling. Do, you oh, do read every uh, script? I, I, I do, but but with a sort of proviso that uh, I'm, I may not get through to the end if it's fruitless. And occasionally yeah. I won't get past the title, but that's a very... Okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> you can't... Uh, yeah. top, top hint... Um, yeah. The title can show whether you're a good writer or not. There are so I mean, this is you know I, I don't stop with the title, but there are scripts where the title is so mangled or strange or odd. You think, but then you don't have an ear, yeah, at all. Call it something bland if you're stuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, you yeah. know, cabin pressure is fine. Frasier, yeah. friends. Yeah, that's Seinfeld. right. Um, you know, you won't always come up with the thick of it, which is you know uh, one of the most extraordinary titles. But you know, if that had just been called government or t- or turmoil or something, it yeah. would have been fine. Fine, yeah, it would have been fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. And um, do you have? Would, are there specific things that you think for radio scripts that are uh, that you're lo- looking for? That um, obviously um, visual gags don't go down well, but. Uh, are there ways in which you know we tell people you know get lots of visual gags into your TV scripts, but how do you think sort of getting audio uh, into? Um, fun- funnily enough, I I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't say that the uh, that that statement is symmetric. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say you know if, I I I don't say um, it's only a radio script if um, if it, there's explosions and people falling into. Um, Vats of custard yeah. and uh, and you're dogs making that can the talk. most yeah you're yeah mm. yeah I, don't, I mean I, that that's actually not um, not massively necessary and those things uh, you know except for me to go, Milton script obviously this is a Milton Jones script <laughs> in which case all three things happen yes. pretty much yeah. in the first two minutes yeah. of every episode yeah but um, so I, I think uh, um, so so the answer to that is no I don't think there's anything specifically audio that you go if it doesn't have that I don't want to know it's boring to produce yeah because. Uh, you know, great radio scripts can be 
well, they can be a monologue, but they can certainly ju- just unquote be dialogue. I mean, I do a yeah. series called John Finnemore's Double Axe, and that, uh, you know, there are occasionally um, elaborate sound effects. I mean, there was one called The Queen's Speech where we had to reproduce an early form of phonograph machine recording Queen Victoria, and that took a very long time to make the sound of it and involve Meccano, mm. I seem to remember. Um, but <laughs> uh, but they can be very, very simple. So the, an- the answer is no custard required. Okay. Cut custard delightful if if it fits. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying this interview with David Tyler. We've got one more question for him in a moment, but before that, just want to remind people that they can join our Patreon scheme and hear lots more of this kind of thing because we have tons of of audio that's just for Patreon subscribers, including Soup to Nuts, where we're going through and creating a sitcom before your very ears, and there are at least six hours worth of podcasts on that, and then lots of other things. Uh, We refer to the fact that we just spoke to Milton. That interview is going to be up there as well very shortly for Patreon subscribers before it is eventually released. possibly in an edited form uh, to to everybody else so loads of reasons to join there's also a private facebook group and also lots of other benefits including uh, getting in the know about various things that are coming up and uh, also copies of our book including my book writing that sitcom isn't available as an audio book to patreon subscribers it's sort of appearing in the private rss feed for that so tons of reasons to join hope you're able to get along and have a look go over to patreon dot com and look for sitcom geeks and you'll find us and there are three or four levels of of getting stuck in so anyway i hope you enjoy that there's also the uh, script competition that we're doing do look on bcg pro for that that's in accordance uh, in association with them so look up that and the winner of that competition will get a a full script um set of notes and also be on the podcast if that doesn't fill you with horror and we'll go through the script in more detail but um anyway here's the the last bit of that interview dave had to pop out so it's just me and david tyler and here we go and then the last question is um and we've had a conversation about this offline with regard to other things the temptation because you can do anything you like with radio is that you can set something in the past or in the future, or in in a science fiction universe. And the demand and market for those seems to be very, very limited. Um, Is that fair, do you think? Uh, I think with Radio 4, it used to be the case, it's probably still the case, that they, if they do something set in a specific uh, genre, like uh, science fiction or Jane Austen, to name everything, uh, <laughs> then uh, then they won't do another one while it's running, and they probably won't do one yeah. for some little while afterwards, uh, unless a star sort of decides they want to do it, and yeah. then you can't They've say no. It. Yeah. Uh, I th- uh, and so I think that's been true my entire life up to about 10 minutes ago. Right. Uh, now, uh, with other outlets, say uh, Audible or your own podcast or BBC Sounds, mm. it's probably, the demand for that is probably unlimited because the demand for everything is unlimited. I don't think anyone in the podcasting world will go, oh, you see, we've got, a, we've got a science fiction one now, so that's it. Yeah. Uh, which is precisely what Radio 4 do, quite rightly, yeah. say. Uh, so... Uh, the, the answer is absolutely go for it. Yes, I mean, yeah. uh, for, but not for Radio 4. Uh, you really should listen to what's out there and go, well, they're not going to do, and they're not going to take my one about a disgruntled author because they've been running Ed Reardon's week for quite for, a long time. For 15 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the possibilities are there, aren't they, in terms of these other 
other markets. Yeah, well, they're not if you want to be paid, obviously. Well, that's the problem, yes, isn't if it? If you wish to exchange um, uh, that for actual sort of coinage that you can spend, yeah. uh, then no. In return for housing slash mortgage, <laughs> it's very difficult. Oh, calories, sort of Maslow's pyramid of needs, a sort of warmth, shelter and, <laughs> and calories. So even that is not going to be available if you do a podcast. Yeah, so the advice is ideally do anything but become a writer. Oh, well, obviously that first. Yeah. Yes, yeah, clearly. That's, I mean, that, that's, a a, that's a given. I mean, if, if, if we take nothing else away from this, it's, it's simply don't do it. <laughs> but if you're fool enough to do it, if you would... If you must. If you must, as they say, if you would uh, die rather than not do it. Yeah. Uh, if you take the notebook to the beach and irritate your loved one by doing so. Yeah. Uh, then um, Radio 4, fantastic place. Mm. They do pay properly, and I'm using properly and not even ironically, they do pay properly. It is real money. Mm. You can make a living. You should make a living. Um, but then you do have to study the landscape and go, OK, yeah. they've done one set in medieval times. They've got a, they've got a sci-fi one running. Um, they've got one set in a, you know, a, a recovering alcoholics yeah. unit. Uh, or a so, political one, so don't, they're not going to have another Bonabat Parliament. You know, um, no, so... And uh, also, you're, you're very unlikely to be the sort of person that they would commission to do that, given that you don't seem to have a particular insight or access into that world, I, I guess. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so, so write, write what you must, write mm. what you know, and you don't do either of those things. <laughs> would be my tip. There you go. Excellent. David Tyler, thank you very much indeed. Ah, uh, literally a pleasure. Not, even, not I mean, not even metaphorically. I actually enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. We've got a little bit of time left here, so why not have a small snippet of my audiobook writing that sitcom? And if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll have already had this uh, turn up in your private RSS feed. But have a listen, and if you like what you hear, then go to Patreon to find out more. Or you can buy the book via my website sitcomgeek.blogspot.com or by looking for it on Amazon. Here we go. Part 1. Creating your sitcom. 1.1. The Situation. It's unlikely that you've decided to buy this book and don't know where the word sitcom comes from. For the avoidance of doubt, it's a shortening of the term situation comedy. What you might not have considered is that it's not a particularly good way of describing the half-hour narrative comedy form. Success in this genre rides or falls on the characters rather than the situation, but the word charcom, carcom, whatever, just sounds weird. It's easy to see how the term sitcom arose. Until recently, they've been filmed more like a play on a few sets, usually in front of an audience. As a result, the situation is the most striking thing about the show, So one might assume that the trick of thinking of a new sitcom is thinking of a workplace that hasn't been done before. Thinking of an original situation, in itself, is hard enough to do. Since the 1950s, Britain has produced a myriad of sitcoms set everywhere imaginable. Funeral parlours. Fun at the funeral parlour, Billy Lyre, and In Loving Memory. Spaceships, Red Dwarf and Hyperdrive. Vicarages, The Vicar of Dibley, Rev. Hospitals, Only When I Laugh, Surgical Spirit, Doctors and Nurses. They've all been done plenty of times and plenty more times and for longer in America. A new situation might be appealing or feel funny, but be careful. A funny situation might sell the show, but people will watch it week after week because of the characters. We're drawn to people in stories, not situations. The best jokes are normally funny because of the character and the story, as well as the situation. Falling over is funny, sure, but it's much funnier when the guy falling over is Del Boy, out with Trigger, trying to be a yuppie and impressing girls having said, nice and cool. The characters are the key. 
If you can, think of characters first. Having said that, the four sitcoms I've created, or co-created, have all started by thinking of the situation first. But each time, the bulk of the development was spent working on the characters. Purely for illustration, let's look at each of the shows, the first three of which were sitcoms for BBC Radio 4. Think the Unthinkable was my first sitcom. The starting point was realising I wanted to write a show about management consultants. In my early 20s, I'd noticed that people I'd been at university with, people with very little experience of business or life, were telling people three times their age what they were doing wrong. That felt both insane and funny, a fruitful situation for comedy. The more I thought about the show and developed the idea, the more I realised that it was all about change and differing attitudes to it. My original three main characters were all happy about change in their own different ways, and they insisted on inflicting this on other people who were more resistant, for a mixture of good and bad reasons. I worked really hard on getting to know my characters inside and out before I worked out the storylines, even though I knew the storylines would probably be funny in their own right. The Pits. My second Radio 4 sitcom is notable only in that it starred the now very famous John Oliver. The Pits has disappeared into obscurity, and I think I know why. It wasn't really about anything. It certainly appeared to be about something. It was about professional musicians who worked for the British Opera Company, a fictionalised version of the Royal Opera House. I researched it a fair bit. There were some decent classical music jokes, some funniest characters doing funniest things while saying funniest lines. The read-throughs were fairly jolly. The audience who turned up to recordings quite enjoyed it. But ultimately, the pits was all about the setting, not the characters. I didn't do it properly because I was overconfident, having done quite well with Think the Unthinkable, which had won silver at the Sony Radio Awards and was on its fourth series. I knew how to write scenes and jokes and stories, but I hadn't figured out that the characters and the central idea behind the show. Naughty. Hut 33. In Hut 33, I really wanted to write a show about codebreakers in Bletchley Park. The obvious angle didn't feel like it was going to be all that funny. Hut 33 was full of boffins and therefore being clever was not at all that remarkable and a show full of super smart people didn't seem viable. This was a few years before Big Bang Theory turned super smart people into billions of dollars. It felt like the show had to be about something else. But what? Through talking to my wife, who was much more interested in social history than guns and bombs, I know, weird, I learned that World War II brought together people from very different social classes. Everyone saw how the other half lived. Poverty and privilege living cheek by jowl. It's why Churchill won the war but lost the general election that year to Attlee in a landslide. People realised that Britain had to change. Hut 33 became a microcosm of that desire for change, so the show was about class and a potential upheaval in the class system. Robert Bathurst plays an over-educated Oxford professor who, like many on the social scene in the 1930s, had been on very friendly terms with the likes of high-ranking Nazis like von Ribbentrop and Rommel before the war broke out. Tom Goodman-Hill played a working-class Trotskyite from Newcastle. Gordon, played by Fergus Craig, was a 17-year-old naive genius stuck in the middle wishing everyone could just be friends. They were forced to spend all day, every day, together in a cold, confined space because there was a war on. Bletchley was the backdrop and playground for their stories. If it had been set in a hospital ward, Hut 33 would have been almost identical to Only When I Laugh. Bluestone 4-2 Richard Hurst and I met working on Miranda. We had a few ideas for new shows, but wondered if there was anything in a show about soldiers. Nothing new there, given Dad's Army, It Ain't Half Hot Mum, The Phil Silvers Show, Bilko, or The Truly Great Mash. There had been a lot of drama and documentaries about the British Army covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but nothing comic. Our understanding of British soldiers was that a sense of humour is extremely important, so we were interested in thinking up a show that reflected that. 
A section of squaddies would be broadly similar in background and outlook and all male, so we look for an army unit that would bring different people, perspectives, backgrounds, genders and expertise together. We arrived at the idea of a bomb disposal squad, partly because it was an interdisciplinary unit which performed a function that was very easy to understand and show on the screen. There's a bomb, deal with it. We started with the guy who does the long walk, Captain Nick Medhurst. We imagined him to be a cocksure rogue who did a job that made him irresistible to women. Okay, he's Sam Malone from Cheers. And then we thought of a character, Mary, who would try harder than most to resist him because she's a padre. Okay, she's Diane from Cheers. And we built the rest of the team around that scenario. But the show developed from there, as the last three episodes of Series 3 contained neither Nick or Mary, because the show is ultimately about something. Why soldiers love being soldiers. A situation can be a good starting point. It can be the reason your characters are together. It can inform the underlying philosophy or the point of the show. But a sitcom is not a comedy about the situation. It's all about the characters. (laughs) 